This is the business of biotech, and my guest today has seen many facets of it. He earned his MD at Harvard, did research fellowships at Howard Hughes and Stanford University, a residency at Stanford School of Medicine. He's uh, since been earning his pharmaceutical industry stripes at companies including Via Pharmaceuticals, where he was VP of Translational Medicine, Avir, where he was Chief Scientific Officer, Twist Bioscience, where he was SVP of Corporate Development and Business Strategy, and Aravive Biologics, where he was President and CEO and Chairman of the Board. He was also an adjunct clinical instructor at Stanford Hospital and Clinics and a venture partner at Bay City Capital. Today, Dr. Ray Tabibiazar is Managing Director at 526 Ventures and Chairman and CEO at Saliogen Therapeutics. For its part, Saliogen is in the early stages of advancing a new category of genetic medicine it calls gene coding, which aims to add a genomic code to turn on, turn off, or modify the function of newer existing genes associated with a broad swath of inherited diseases. Dr. Tabibiazar, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Uh, it's going to be a fun conversation because in our pre-show banter, I learned a little bit about Dr. Tabibiazar that I, I want to, I've got to ask him about, and I'd like him to share a bit with with our audience. It started with the name. So I asked, as all good hosts would do, I asked for the proper pronunciation of the name T-A-B-I-B-I-A-Z-A-R. And Dr. Tabibiazar, you told me. So so it's correct. It's Tabibiazar. And uh, Tabibi means doctor and Azar means fire. And uh, this is a this is actually a, a name that my father chose for himself. Uh, when he was uh, he was a military officer in Iran, and his his original last name was Ben Israel, and clearly um, a Jewish name uh, would not really do well in the Iranian military. So he picked his name as Tabibi Azar, Tabibi being a doctor and Azar being fire. And the reason he did he, he did that is because well, because it's uh, the reason he did that. First of all, you know, you're going to tell us the real reason, but the first, the first, the first reason he did that is because it sounds badass. <laughs> <laughs> probably, probably. <laughs> uh, but, but, uh, you know, as surgeons during those days, they didn't have autoclave or sterilizer. So what they would do, they, they would take their surgical tools, put it into a little metal uh, container, and then put ethanol, alcohol, and then and then you know light it up, and that's how we would how, how he would uh, sterilize his surgical tools. So that would be um, fire. So doctor would fire. So yeah. that, that's how it came up with the name. It's super cool. It's super cool. Uh, so your your father was a physician. Uh, my father was a physician, uh, the only physician in his family, and mm-hmm. um, and. Um, and as as and he he practiced medicine until he came to the U.S. Yeah. Um, now, so you're uh, you, you told me before the show that you're you're the you're uh, you're Persian. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. So I was born in Iran, but I actually grew up in Israel. So um, and before coming to the U.S., I, uh, I I lived in Israel. So there was a there was a ten year hiatus between Iran when I was twelve until I came to the U.S. and I. And that's my formative years actually were in Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I came to us to, to go to college and then medical school. Yeah. 
Yeah. Tell me about the influence. Uh, you know, you went to medical school at Harvard. I mean, your, your pedigree, your academic pedigree speaks for itself. Harvard, Stanford, you know, great, great residencies, great fellowships. Um, tell me about the influence of, of your, your parents, uh, I guess, in, in the early days and how they may or may not have shaped what would become the path that you took. That's a very good question. Uh my parents never told me what to do, to be honest. Uh, my father, uh, he, he, he was very busy being a physician. Uh, he ran a hospital uh, in southern Iran. Um, and, uh, and then there was the revolution and then there was the Iran-Iraq war. So there was a very little um, time uh, or, uh, or opportunity to kind of tell you what to do. I think a lot of the way that our parents or my parents have contributed, and I was on my own since age 13, I went to a boarding school. Uh, so I think that a lot of the, uh, the, 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 a lot of the influence that your parents have is silent, is <laughs> through their actions. And uh, you can go for 50 years not realizing how your parents influenced you until you look in the mirror and you realize you're your parents magically. <laughs> so, yeah. so I think that uh, my parents, especially, I mean, both my parents loved science, but they also loved helping people. And, um, and uh, they couldn't see any higher value than doing something that helps others. And I think that kind of got instilled in you, whether they never told you to do that. Oh, you need to do good. They were not a, uh, but I think that when you realize that every decision they made was for making somebody else's life better or the kid's life better. So they instill those values in you without actually saying it. Um, and I think that's the most powerful way of uh, instilling certain values in you. And those are the values that kind of I feel that for me and my decisions uh, uh, when I make decisions throughout life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm going to fast forward just, just a little bit to, uh, post post med school. So a lot of the guests that I have on the show who are now the leaders of new and emerging biopharma companies, um, the, a lot of the guests who, who practiced medicine, who studied medicine, who were trained in medicine, spent quite a bit of time practicing medicine, being in a clinical setting, uh, before kind of, somehow being bitten by the entrepreneurial bug or the industry bug. Um, they spent quite a bit of time in the clinic before moving to industry. Um, your path to industry, at least on paper, I mean, we haven't, we haven't talked about this, but you know, at least on paper, it looks as though your path to industry out of your uh, clinical and academic experiences was a little bit more direct. Is that right? Like how, I think I, I practiced medicine uh, from 1998 to 2013. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. So, All right. So I did practice medicine, but I did many stuff in parallel. Uh, but, and I think that probably one of the reasons that you see a lot of people, a lot of your guests kind of going through the, the practice of medicine because they become entrepreneur. I think you learn a lot from practice of medicine. Obviously, it's not only about the science, which is the technical skills. It's not only about the art, which is how to deal with people and patients. It's also about certain other characteristics that you de develop as a practicing physician. One is that 
you have a problem you try to solve, right? So you, you get faced with a problem mm-hmm. and then you find the solutions wherever they are to solve that problem, right? So usually as a technology person, you make an invention and then you look fine for solutions, right? So yeah, I made this invention. I have this textile. I have this thing. Where can I go apply it? Physicians find nature the other way around. They have a problem and then they look for technologies or look for solutions to solve their problems. At the, at, at the core is defining a problem they have to solve. Patient comes out in, in, you know, in your emergency room, walks into your clinic, walks into the operating room. You really don't know what it is. You, you, you define a problem and then you, you, then you go out there using your own knowledge, your consulting physicians, your nurses, you come up with, you put the team together to solve that problem. So I think that's one. Number two, I think you become more comfortable with the unknown, right? Because whatever you come up with a solution, the solution is not predefined. You, you're kind of putting the different ways, uh, different ways to solve that. So it's really going into the unknown. And entrepreneurship is getting comfortable with an unknown, getting comfortable that you have a problem, but getting confident that you can solve that problem. Mm-hmm. So I think that those two characteristics make for a good entrepreneur and a good leader. So you have a problem, you have a vision to solve that problem. So you, you can define that vision. You have, and you want to make a difference, you come up with it innovative ways. So because a lot of the problems you see, there's not, oh, here's a solution for it. It's not pre-written. So you come up with innovative ways to solve a problem. And, and then you have the, the comfort, in a sense, to, to, to deal with an unknown. You don't know what tomorrow is going to be, but you know that you, you have the confidence in you and your team that you will solve that problem the next day. And that's how you talk to the patient. Yeah. I don't know what's going on with you today, but I will figure it out. I will do the tests. I will talk to the other doctors as need be. We will figure it out together. So it's, it's that comfort. And that allows you to lead other people because not everybody knows that you'll have the solution, but you kind of corralling the morale of the patient, the you know, other physicians, the nurses, to say, we'll figure it out. And, and, and most of the time you do, so you're building that confidence. So after a few years of practicing medicine, I think some of your CEOs that you've talked to prior guests, I think they're, they're, I think that's the comfort that they have. Yeah. And the third issue is that I think that physicians develop a diverse background that enables them to, 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 to do that, to, to kind of, lead and solve the problems. So in a sense, they're multidisciplinary. What do I mean by that? No physician can make a diagnosis solely by talking to a person or solely by looking at the test, the lab results, or solely looking at the chest x-ray. They feel comfortable with a multidisciplinary approach to a problem. I'll talk to the patient. I get some lab tests. I read some articles, I do some uh, imaging studies, I maybe do the procedure, and then you're putting all this information together, integrate it, and then you come up with a solution. And then you test it to see, because sometimes the solution you don't know until you, you kind of give the therapeutics. Mm-hmm. And then you give the therapeutics and you, you're kind of comfortable with that test uh, 
you know, developing a hypothesis, testing it, and see what happens. I hope that's a long answer to your question. Uh, gives you a good and you know good good view of why yeah. some of your guests go from being a you know physicians to entrepreneurs and leaders in in their field. Well, it's a be- it's a be- yeah, it's a beautiful response because it. I mean, we we could sp- we could spend the rest of our time together uh, dissecting that that response uh, because you you bring up some points that just make me um, <laughs> want want to dig deeper. Like, if, if if you're wondering if you're if you're a a process engineer listening to the show, a bioprocess engineer, you work on the manufacturing or operation side, and you're wondering what sets uh, a, a doctor of medicine who leads a, a biopharma apart from uh, the average Joe. Apparently, according to Doctor Tabibiazar, is it's a comfort with the with the unknown because that just sounds you know there's a there's a paradox there. So it, it occurs to me that so you discussed what what sort of feed feeds that entrepreneurial itch uh, and and you know why why you made that move. But when you when you shortly after you you came out of uh, the academic and clinical experience, you spent some time with um, established biopharma companies. Um, so at, at what point did you decide like from from the move to industry to you know what this is great, but I want to go do it myself. I want to get involved in venture capital. I want to have skin in the game. I want to raise money. I want to. I want to take a company uh, of my own somewhere. When, when did that happen, and what sort of inspired it? It actually. Uh, it, I never went to a large pharma. It was always with uh, with new company formations, and it was. So, as you may recall, uh, I, I trained as a as, as at Harvard as a physician, and then mm-hmm. went to Stanford, um, and and trained as a cardiologist. At Stanford, uh, for me, Stanford really represented a good interface between science and medicine. So I had a passion for the science. I thought medicine is really the best application uh, of science in in kind of helping patients uh, in a sense. Uh, and, 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 so when, so during that time as a cardiologist, um, I had a passion to understanding what is the underlying drivers of cardiovascular disease. So I had the science background. So it's like, so that's how I, I slowly became more and more involved in molecular cardiology. And through my experiences in our lab, focusing on understanding the underlying mechanisms of cardiovascular disease, the molecular underpinning of vascular disease and the underlying genetic drivers of cardiovascular disease. That's how I was introduced in, you know, slowly into the biotech industry. Mm-hmm. And as I met, as we spoke earlier, I had a problem. My problem was that I want, I wanted to understand what the underlying drivers of cardiovascular disease are and how to treat it. So through that, I started collaborating with different uh, existing biopharmaceutical companies at that time was Agilent, uh, you know, uh, and, and through that, uh, we made a lot of discoveries in our lab. And initially we started licensing some of those discoveries. And after two or three of these collaborations and licensing, uh, we thought about what about we spinning out this company and we, we, we control the, the path forward 
Because sometimes when you license something, you kind of lose control over the faith of that discovery. You kind of like you're handing it off to somebody else and somebody else moves it forward. Right. So that transition was about, well, we did it two or three times. Now we want to spin out a company, control our faith and control the development because we had very specific ways we wanted to understand the answers and apply it. So that, I think that's how it kind of slowly transitioned into, you know, academic exercise, licensing, and then uh, creating new companies. So that's how I ended up being kind of moving into entrepreneurial path. And during that time period, before you knew it, you became trilingual. So you understood science, you understood medicine, and now you spoke finance. <laughs> so you speak yeah. three languages. Uh, so, so I think that as an entrepreneur, what, what, I, what I learned, and that's how I applied it to the next ventures, is that you really have to have a vision uh, of making a difference and have a passion for innovation. And then, as I mentioned, you have to feel comfortable with the, with the unknown that you can solve the problems. Um, and then along the way, have the diverse background and multidisciplinary approach that I described to you to be able to advance your vision. So I think that it's kind of evolved gradually. It was never, I never woke up, well, it was never my, you know, I didn't have a long, long time childhood dream to wake up and be an entrepreneur. And I never woke up one day and, and say, today I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I think it's kind of gradually yeah. kind of evolved in, in that way. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned uh, the, the diversity of your experiences. Another thing that jumps out at me is the diversity of the, the molecules and therapeutic types, I guess, modalities that you've worked with over the course of, of your career. You know, I see, um, you know, obviously practicing medicine, I see small mall, I see diagnostics, gene synthesis. It's a, it's, it's a very diverse, um, I guess, collection of experiences. Is there, uh, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know that you could maybe look back and say, well, there's, there was strategy there that led me to where I am today, but is, is there some sort of a common, a common string across those experiences that have kind of built up to where you are today? <laughs> Well, I have two answers for you on that one. There's a short answer. The answer, the short answer is yes, that it was the passion for the science and the medicine, defining a problem mm -hmm. and, and then using those pieces of the puzzle. It doesn't matter where the solution comes from. Um, I think that kind of the, the, I think the common string is really also the cross section of innovation of science, technology, and medicine apply innovative science to medicine. I think that's the cross section. But as I mentioned, it was about defining a problem. And then sometimes innovation happens when you have a multidisciplinary approach where you don't have a preset solution. So, so then you get the tools wherever you can get them because, again, you never know where the solution comes from. And part of it probably was my training. I and mean, as a cardiologist, for example, uh, there's no one set of therapeutic modality. You use small molecules, you use large molecules, you use diagnostics, you use procedures, you, you do procedures. So I think it's, it's a, again, it's a comfort that you're driven by solving a problem, not driven by the specific technology that allows you to do that. So yeah. then if you have a problem, the physiology doesn't change, but the technology moves really fast. 
So if I, for example, 30 years ago, got really excited about doing northern blots <laughs> to do RNA, well, every five years is advanced. Then you had microarrays. After microarrays, your RNA-seq. Now you have chips. I mean, so, so in a sense, the problem is what you have to focus on. And then solution comes in as technology evolves. So I think that that's part of the answer. But the other answer is that the long answer is that, you know, especially when you do the Dr. Phil session here, <laughs> uh, I think it, the long answer is that it takes me back. Like, why did I do all this stuff? Like, why even I went to cardiology? I think it brings me back to the lecture that Dean Hunter, the dean of medical school at Harvard, gave on the first day. He said that he looked at all of us and said uh, that, uh, you know, he reminded us that you guys are all here because you love science and you love patients. You love you want to do something good. Um, and, uh, you, and you guys are all like pluripotent stem cells, have many different ways to differentiate and contribute to field of medicine. He said, but some of you guys would like to avoid this differentiation. You just want to continue doing everything and resist that differentiation and would want to try to stay as a pluripotent stem cell as long as you can. I guess I'm one of those guys that I try to resist the differentiation and remain a pluripotent stem cell. When you're striving to excel in a new arena, the best guides are the ones already doing it well. The business of biotech brings those voices forward to help new and emerging biopharmas turn their innovations, like mRNA and cell and gene therapies, into clinical realities. Tune in and subscribe for insights on hiring, regulatory, and other need-to-know topics for biopharma leaders. The podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Cytiva. Check out their resources at cytiva.com backslash emerging biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A dot com backslash Emerging Biotech. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. Yeah, definitely in terms that our audience can relate to. Um, so I want to I want to give you an opportunity to tell us the Saliogen story. I feel like we could sit here and, and talk, you know, sort of philosophical inspiration and, and paths uh, to, to bio biopharma leadership all morning long. But um, I want to learn about Saliogen because all of this kind of at, at this point in your career kind of culminates with your um, I don't know. I You don't call yourself a founder, but you've been with Saliogen since it launched in, in 2020. Tell us the origin story there and then we'll get into what Saliogen's trying to do. First of all, I think your earlier questions are very relevant because as it, to better understand the story of Saliogen, the, the background as, as is, is very relevant. So Saliogen is a Boston-based you know, biotechnology company that is pioneering a new category of genetic medicine to transform the treatment paradigm of patients with inherited diseases. And we're calling the technology gene coding and the, our mission is to really being able to treat all inherited disorders, both rare and common. Uh, the, the story starts where uh, Dr. Higgins and I, Joe Higgins and I started a company because we wanted to solve a problem. And we had an idea about how to do it about two years ago as we were thinking about the future of genetic medicine. Mm-hmm. You probably don't know Joe, but you know some of the work that he has done. Joe was part of the Human Genome Project, and he identified the alpha-synuclein gene, 
as a causative uh, gene for Parkinson's and in human diseases. So you don't know him, but you don't know, you know his gene. So as friends, uh, we were both passionate physicians. We're both physician scientists. And we're talking about how we see the future of genetic medicine. And we thought that, it, that for genetic medicine to really unlock its full potential, it needs to be as common as a modality as an antibody or a small molecule. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, much and being basically broadly applicable. So if you really think about it, much like over the past 10, 15 years, how genetic diagnostics has become as common as, as getting a routine blood test, we thought that genetic medicine kind of trajectory should be, and it's going to be like genetic diagnostics. So the question was, uh, and at that time, we we're very excited about a lot of the advancement that being in genetic medicine with AAB gene therapy, Avaxis got its first you know, approval with CRISPR and uh, the whole field of gene editing, exploring. So we were very excited about the prospects of the genetic medicine field. SRNA with Alnino was making a lot of progress. Uh, but despite all these excitements around these modalities, there were also a lot of hurdles uh, that we identified uh, that, would, that would make it difficult to reach our vision that you have a disease, you, you diagnose a genetic disease, and here's a treatment for it just right there. Mm -hmm. uh, so we knew of the problems. Uh, so we formed a company to address these problems. So it's, 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 it's literally we defined a problem and we wanted to solve it. And, uh, and um, specifically, so wine gene coding and specifically around the technology around uh, Salugen, uh, we looked at the limitations. So AAV gene therapy has, has an inherent limitation of, because you're using a viral particle to deliver a cargo size and that cargo size is limited. Vast majority of our, a lot of our inherited uh, ailments require large genes or genes that have multiple mutations in them. So AAV, while addressing a, a specific area, it's not, it couldn't be broadly applicable. It's also immunogenic. So if you needed to give somebody the second dose, it, it would be, you you'd kind of reject the virus. So you kind of rejecting that cargo. Mm -hmm. With gene editing, again, it's 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 very very exciting. Uh, but all gene editing tools require nucleases. And there are like genetic scissors that cuts the DNA. And uh, so we felt that uh, uh, this double strand breaks that scissors cause may not be broadly applicable to common diseases. Also, a lot of the genetic diseases have lots of mutations in them. And you can go in and, and edit, in a sense, every letter in the word. Sometimes you just need to put a whole paragraph in because you the edits are so many of them that you just either you just limit yourself to a very subset of patients or you just require to put the whole paragraphs. So we identify a lot of the hurdles, but we didn't have a solution. So uh, we were stuck. So we looked at, at we asked ourselves, well, how does evolution do that? How is our genes and in, in a million genome was put together? There are lots of genes and they're very big. So how is it? How was the evolution do it to the first place? And that's how we kind of looked into the biology of mobile genetic elements and the enzymes that move that genetic information around. 
Uh, and this is, this is how our genome was put together at the first place. So we use bioinformatics tools. This happened during COVID. We didn't have a lot of wet labs, so we did a lot of bioinformatics. And we looked through the DNA sequences of mammalian genomes and found a sequence for the enzyme that has once been used to do exactly that. Mm -hmm. uh, so we took that uh, enzyme sequence, we engineered it in a few different ways. So we came up with a, with a whole slew of different variants of that enzyme we call salugase. So it's a mammalian enzyme. And to our knowledge, it is the first and only we are the first and only company that uses a mammalian enzyme for manipulating the genome, inserting large pieces of DNA into the genome. Mm -hmm. And this enzyme kind of became the backbone of our gene coding platform. So that's the history of, you know, defining a problem, not having a readily available solution, trusting ourselves that like any other problem, we can solve it by asking the right questions. Well, did evolution solve it somehow? And then going there, looking for it and finding kind of the, the, the tool and building the tool, many tools now in the tool shed that formed the company. Does yeah. that give you a good background of how, how your earlier questions were actually relevant even to Sally? Yeah, it's coming full circle. And I, we, we didn't rehearse this, folks. I'm hearing it for the first time myself. So pat on the back to myself for that, uh, <laughs> that, that series of initial questions. But it sounds to me, it's, correct me if I'm wrong here. I want, I want to try to, so it's, it sounds a lot of uh, biopharma companies, biotherapeutic, cell and gene or otherwise, um, you know, come at it like we're, we're, we're going to develop a solution to a specific indication. It sounds to me like, at least in the early days for Saliogen, this was a, this was a more horizontal approach. And I feel like that's playing out in terms of your early stated kind of, you know, pre preclinical pipeline. It's a, you're, you're looking to tackle it's when, when I say horizontal, I say like, if you look at, uh, you know, when I look at your pipeline, I see retinal, heart, liver, lung, bone marrow, kidney disease. Like, wow, we're all over the body here. I, if each of those is an industry, the platform is sort of the horizontal piece that you feel you're going to be able to develop therapeutics um, that address uh, diseases in each of those inherited orders. Areas. So, 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 so look, with gene coding, you have the... What is gene coding is putting a new genetic code into the genome that can add, delete, and modify function of any other gene. Mm -hmm. So the, 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 the potential is enormous. You can do anything, right? Because you put a new genetic code into the genome and that allows you to do lots of different things and a lot of other diseases. But the question is, how do you pursue some of these indications? How do you prioritize these indications? Mm -hmm. And the well, main- it's a, natural, it's a natural question. Like, like I said, in any other, this is why I want to make sure I understand sort of the, that uh, genetic coding, I guess, um, the, the, the theory, like the broad applicability of, of the theory behind what you're doing, because in any other situation, I'm talking with a company that's developing, you know, monoclonal antibodies or, you know, uh, ADCs. And they tell me we're going to go after the heart, the liver, the lungs, the bone marrow, and the kidneys. I'm going to say, okay, how you're a brand new company. You've been around for two years. You probably have a handful of people, very, very good people, I'm sure, but a handful of people, how are you possibly going to muster the resources to do that. So that's why I wanted to get my mind around like a full. Yeah. Understanding. Yeah. So let me answer that. Let me answer that in two parts. Part number one, how do you even prioritize those indications? You have a long list of 
long list of indications that you can pursue. How do you prioritize them? Mm-hmm. And then once you prioritize, how you execute on them. So the strategy and the tactical aspect of it. So those are, I'll try to answer those two. So the way you strategize is by having patience first. So what do I mean by that? So all those indications, you ask the following question. What are the unmet clinical needs? So you put patients first. That means like, what is a significant unmet clinical need that is uniquely addressed by your technology? So, so that's the first question. Mm-hmm. The second question in the prioritization is, is how do you, how can you execute, how, which one is feasible that have a clear clinical outcome that you can measure for your therapy. So when you look at those pipelines, then the eye, the lipid disorders, and the lung kind of gonna flow to the top, right? Because these, these, like let's say, let's go with the with the lung, or uh, let's go with the eye first. Mm-hmm. A lot of the inherited macular degenerations involve very large genes. You can use them in an AAV to, to pack them into an AAV, and you can't. Uh, really, because there are a lot of large genes with multiple mutations, you can't really use gene editing to fix every every mutation in that. So it provides you for a very specific uh, need and that can be uniquely addressed by our technology. But with the eye, the visual acuity is also a very clear endpoint, right? Yeah. So you can actually develop that therapeutics. The third bucket is that once you even start from that narrow eye disease with one gene, once you figure out how to deliver it, once you figure out the GLP in a sense talks and you know that it's safe, you can plop in a new gene and now you have a, you can pursue a high velocity pipeline toward all the eye ailments. Yeah. So, so that's, that's what drives the prioritization of, yes, you have a long list of long list of indications that you can pursue, like the cardiac, like the kidney, the lung, the eye. But you do it in a in a methodical fashion. You put a high priority and you move down as you you know developing your platform. Now, tech physically, tactically, how do you do it? You're a small company. Remember, you're a physician. You have you have a patient. You have a problem. How do you solve that problem? You may not be able to do it only within your company. So how do you do it? So there, we, 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 and again, keep the problem. If you have patient-centric, you say, my, I need to solve this problem, which is developing a therapeutic for a patient. I have the priority, so I have the strategy. How do I implement it? How do I execute on it? How do I operationalize it? So we do that with, in a sense, both internal, and external, mm-hmm. meaning that there are certain things we say we really do it well, really well internally. So I'm going to do within this long list of priority, I'm going to take these and I'm going to do it internally. These, I think a partnership would do better because they have a better know-how. They know this disease space better. As long as I want to get to these patients faster, I'm going to go there. For example, we didn't pick up the lung disease, CF, until we partnered up with CF Foundation because now we feel confident with the CF Foundation know-how and experience and knowledge of that patient population, we can advance it more successfully. So then we internalize that program. Mm-hmm. Now, internally, how do you do that? Because let's say you have four or five programs. 
How do you do that in practice? So the way we're doing it, we create a matrix organization. What does that mean, a matrix organization? We, we created a group, uh, core function centers of excellence, for example, for tech ops, manufacturing, regulatory, clinical. So these provide support throughout the different verticals. And the verticals are, are the eye, the liver, the lung. So you can see there's a matrix. Yeah. There's a lot of advantage to create a matrix like that. One, unlike a lot of small companies that, that are hierarchical, we say like basically it flows down. So you create a long, a big distance between the top guy and the bottom. Throughout that, you lose communication. You lose importance. Mm-hmm. Uh, you lose that you lose that fire in people's belly. We're smart, we're a small company. Small companies, the reason people go to a small company because they have a fire in their belly. So when you put too much distance and they become cognitive wheel, they lose that, yeah. that fire and you become 20%. Uh, 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 you, you have a uh, you have a lot of turnover in your people. Right. When you create a matrix. It's it's no longer a branch. It's a matrix. It's a web. Everybody interfaces with everybody. Everybody is working with each other. Uh, it do risks everybody's work because if one vertical doesn't work, you have two other verticals to work in. People working on centers of excellence, these core functions and the verticals, and they can move around. It keeps the fire in the belly. It helps operationalize, and most importantly, it makes it scalable. So I can do many programs um, as uh, as uh, as 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 our vision wants us to pursue. Does that yeah. answer your question? So it sure you does. Yeah. Two buckets. Yeah, it's an excellent excellent illustration of the corporate structure there. You know, I I, I like it. It de- definitely answers the question. I I'm curious. Uh, I'm going to put you ask you to put your um your forward looking goggles on now. You know, kind of look into the crystal ball a little bit. When you get to the point where you're taking multiple, potentially uh, multiple of these um, of these candidates or these programs into human trials and and even beyond, um, what g- give us a sense for what the manufacturer? So right now, the company, you know, the way I envision it, the way you're describing it, it's very much kind of IP intellect based, right? Like you, like you said, during COVID, you did a lot of bioinformatics. This was, there was a lot of thought, a lot of, a lot of thought power going into the development of the company and, and setting up the foundation for what you're doing. There's going to come a point where, you know, you're going to have to produce a, a, a product, perhaps multiple products um, for, for, for testing and distribution and going into, into clinical trials. Is that like with, with these, with the inherited diseases that you uh, intend to pursue is, is that, does that remain relatively small scale, even as you approach and, and reach uh, commercial status? Or are there indications here where you're going to have to have like a significant um, manufacturing footprint? And what might that look like? Just give us some, some sense for that. We actually building our own manufacturing capabilities. Um, if you really think about the gene coding platform itself, it has three components, DNA, RNA, and lipid nanoparticles. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are not using large biologicals, you know, like antibody when you have, you know, this, this steel container, 2000 liters or 10,000 liters. So we, we feel that we, even as a small company can build our own internal manufacturing capabilities. Uh, so for the near term, for going to the clinic, we're using a hybrid model, meaning that 
you know, initially we're using a mix of CDMOs, external manufacturing, externalizing some of that, just much like what I described with the pipeline. And we complemented our own internal capabilities. And as we, as the company grows, we're building more of our internal capabilities and relying less on the CDMO. So it's a hybrid approach that we're currently taking on. I think putting the, putting the, you know, the, the, looking at the crystal ball five to 10 years from now, I think we want to control our own fate by building our own uh, manufacturing uh, capabilities. And, and I don't think it requires, uh, I think that's something that basically we, we should be able to handle. Mm -hmm. And we're building that infrastructure as we speak. Awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, so a couple more questions. I know you've got to run and so do I, yeah. uh, but just a couple more questions to wrap things up here and, and dovetailing with what you just said, you know, your anticipation of, of building your own man manufacturing facility. Um, it appears as though, at least uh, in the early part of the year, you guys are, are heading into 2022 horns down and well healed with some nice funding. You kicked off the year with $115 million series B um, so I just wanted to pick your brain a little bit on the behind the scenes effort um, for, for that, for that fundraising effort. Uh, you know, what, what, what went into making that happen as, you know, from your perspective as CEO of the company um, and what you intend to do with that funding? Yeah. So I think that the strategy that we had uh, for the financing is that we wanted to attract very sophisticated and long-term investors. Uh, but we also wanted, beside the traditional institutional investors, we really wanted patient-centric foundations uh, related to some of the specific areas that we were interested in. So we're very fortunate to be able to attract uh, very sophisticated investors. So uh, Craig Gordon uh, from Gordon MD led the round. We brought in Tiro, Fidelity, D1, Symbiosis, um, and slew of other investors, Epic Capital, but we also brought in a lot, aside from these sophisticated long-term investors, because you're, you're starting a new field of genetic medicine. You, you're going to go through ups and downs. So you want to, you want investors that are have a steady hand <laughs> on the wheel along sure. with you uh, so that you, you, they, they can understand that it, it's a long-term, lots of ups and downs, you know, so they have, they have that's their season. But also, we're very fortunate to be able to bring the Cystic, Founda Cystic Fibrosis Foundation and, and Foundation for Finding Blindness, because that also brings that uh, patient-centric culture to our company. And interestingly, if you look at our board of directors, four out of the five board members are physicians. And that sets the culture, uh, the patient-centric culture of the, of the company. Uh, um, so, and we, we, we've been very fortunate that in the past 12 months, we raised, you know, almost a little bit over $135 million. Mm -hmm. And will we be using that capital to obviously advance our pipeline, building our platform, but most importantly, build the team. Um, and, uh, and you may have seen, uh, some of our team members, uh, I mentioned Joe Higgins, who is a chief scientific officer, uh, who, uh, uh, who obviously one of the scientific co-founders. But we also brought in uh, really experienced and seasoned management like Nancy Craig. Nancy Craig is luminary in the field of mobile genetic element. 
So we have a lot of know-how that comes with Nancy to the company. We also brought in Dr. Sandeep Nima, who uh, is a veteran Pfizer. He was involved with novel biotherapeutics development, including most recently with the COVID vaccine development. So he brings a lot of practical knowledge of developing a drug. Um, we balance the science with a strong business side. So Song Yu is coming from PBM Capital as our uh, chief business officer. So we're building very strong science and a business within a company. But we know that we can't have everything in the company as management. Uh, we know that the board has, obviously we're reporting to the board. So we also strengthen our kind of uh, mentors through an executive advisory board that we put together. So that's where we brought in John Maraginori, the previous CEO of Al Nylum. He has done a novel new category of genetic medicine, so we can share some of his scars. Mark McClellan, the ex-FDA commissioner. Again, why bringing an ex-FDA commissioner into a small new company? Well, it's a new category of genetic medicine. We have to interface with the FDA very closely. So having somebody that mentors us, uh, you know, within the company's executive advisor is very helpful. And we also brought in Andrew Lowe as an advisor, and he's, a, he's, a, he's an economist from MIT. Why is that? It's because the question you ask about pipeline, how do you prioritize? So Andrew Lowe is, is really a world expert about quant putting, I mean, we can do a lot of stuff intuitively, but how do you put some quantitative data around it? And we have, a lot of, we have a lot of good SAB members that are luminaries in their field in the specific pipelines that I described, so cardiovascular, lipid, eye. Uh, so we have, we have a good SAB. So really this, uh, this financing is, is helping us building the infrastructure, uh, advancing our pipeline, but again, most importantly, to, to build a team because the most important part of the company is the team, is the culture, uh, and it's the team that makes the company. So we're spending a lot of time in, in attracting uh, really uh, amazing talent that are both smart, but also extremely nice to work with. Well, that's very important. Nice to work with is very important. I was just thinking as, as you're rattling off this list of superstars in the life sciences space, I'm thinking you better protect them from Washington, which is losing its uh, life sciences leadership left and right uh, these days, you know, as they look to replace people at the FDA, the NIH, the OTS, they might be uh, sniping from Sally Ogens. You better better protect those folks. I think we have a very uh, talented group, but they're also extremely nice. And the reason is because, again, if you keep a higher purpose as your mission, which is helping patients, helping somebody beyond you, helping and making a, the, 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 the world a better place, if you have that common mission, I think you it's natural that people, nicer people gravitate toward that. And uh, and I'm completely supportive of these nice people contributing to to the to, to the world. And uh, and if that means they want to go into politics, I'll be hundred percent supportive <laughs> of that as well. <laughs> well, yeah, it might help to have some friends in those high places, but uh, but you have to support people's passion. That's right. Uh, you, you can't. You remember that fire in the belly. You can't contain it. All you can do is support it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Parting thoughts, Dr. Tabibizar, is anything that I haven't asked you that you wanted to make sure that uh, you, you close with as we wrap things up here? 
No, I think you you very thorough. Uh, you started with a with a, with Doctor Phil session about the background, <laughs> the technical Doctor, aspect. Doctor uh, Ray 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 Doctor Fire MD. I, I, <laughs> God. I, I think look as 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 you uh, one of the things that uh, I, I tell my team is that uh, a successful company to make a good company. To make a good company, to have a good company, you need three components, three ingredients. You need good science, you need good people, and you need good luck. But you can only control the first two, the science and the people. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, so so and and, and Saliogen is is working very hard on on those two aspects. So hopefully, with a little luck, uh, we can also make uh, powerful advancements and having a really great company. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's. That's my parting words uh, for anybody who's trying to make a good company. Focus on those three ingredients. I like it. And I wish you, you know, to, to whatever degree I have any to give and wish, I wish you all the luck that it takes. Because I really, because I like you, Dr. TBB Zara. I really oh, enjoyed this. I really enjoyed it. You talk about good people. You're, you're good people. I really enjoyed this conversation. And uh, we'll be paying attention. I hope to have you back on the show someday to share some progress at Salio, Jen. Anytime. And Matt, thank you so much for inviting me for this. And and thank you for, for all the work you're doing with all the great interviews you're having with others. It's been fun. I'm, I'm doing it selfishly. I'm learning, learning as much as I'm sure more than our audience. They know more than I do. So thanks for joining us. Okay. Thank you. So that's Dr. Ray Tabibiazar or Dr. Fire of Saliogen Therapeutics. I'm Matt Piller, and this is the Business of Biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online, and you'll never miss an episode if you go directly to bioprocessonline.com and sign up for my newsletter. We're supported by Cytiva, which demonstrates its commitment to new and emerging biopharma companies like Saliogen by way of its biotech accelerator. Learn more at cytivalifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech. Check that out. And if you like what you're hearing on this podcast, please subscribe, share it with your colleagues, and leave us a review. In the meantime, thanks for listening.